In his book, Fuzzy Memories, Jack Handy tells of how he grew up having to deal with a bully. And the bully every day would intimidate him when he was young and, and steal his lunch money. And because the bully was much bigger than him, there was not much he could do except hand it over. But he decided one day that he was going to take karate lessons so he could defend himself. But the karate lessons were $5 a lesson, and back then that was a lot of money. So Jack Handy decided it was just cheaper to pay the bully. And I wonder if us as Christians think the same way. I wonder, do we believe it's just cheaper to pay the bully? I think that there are some Christians that don't realize that they are even involved in a spiritual battle. I think there are some that have grown complacent over time and just decided that it's not worth fighting anymore. They're content to let the devil have his way, not realizing that every little battle he wins leads to a greater defeat. During the Vietnam War, one of the things that was difficult was knowing who the enemy really was. Not every person on the other side wore a uniform. Some of them were dressed like civilians. And one American soldier said it was difficult to discern who the enemy was. And so sometimes we'd just walk up to him and say, are you the enemy? And they'd say, yes, and we'd shoot him. Because that's all you could do. Do we know who the enemy is? Are we well aware of who the enemy is? Because we kind of talk about the devil and we view the devil in our culture as, as a caricature as a cartoon character, as this, as this guy that's got a beard and, and, and a red suit and carries a pitchfork. We have brought him down to a level to where he's no longer scary, where he's no longer the enemy. Paul wrote, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. My friends, it's time we got to know the enemy. It's time we became well aware of who it is we're fighting against because there is a battle going on. I hope you realize that. I hope you understand. I hope it's crystal clear to you that we are involved in a battle. This is a fight for our lives. And the Bible makes mention of it many times. Here's just a few. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Here's another one. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who has enlisted him as a soldier. And then Ephesians 6. We're going to talk about this one a lot over the next few weeks. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is an enemy that stands against everything we stand for. And the Bible defines him as a subtle serpent, as a master of disguise, as a roaring lion, as a father of lies. He is the great dragon. He is the prince of this world. Jesus identified the enemy, and we have to do the same. We must know who it is we're fighting against. A war is raging and far too many Christians are losing because they're weak, because they're ignorant, or they are unprepared. And sadly, some are unconcerned. This is a fight for our lives. 
There is a war raging, and the enemy is fully invested in winning. Are you? You must choose a side here. You can't be Switzerland. You can't be neutral. When you became a child of God, you were enlisted in God's army, which means you've got to fight. You can't be a draft dodger here. You were drafted. You've got to fight. You've got to take up your weapons, and you have to fight against the devil. So Ephesians chapter 6, look with me, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, let's get some context here. So in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Paul outlines the blessings that come from being in Christ, the blessings that come from obeying the gospel. In chapters 4 through 6, he is seeking to motivate the brethren to please God in the church, in the world, at home. Paul begins wrapping everything up in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 with these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Pull on the full armor of God, he says, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then he goes on to describe what that armor looks like. And over the next few weeks on Sunday nights... We're going to take each piece of armor and look at them individually. On Sunday mornings, we're going to take a more overall approach to who it is we're fighting, why we're fighting, and how we actually win this battle. So, when we look at this armor that Paul tells us to put on, this this evening I want us to look more as an introduction to what it means to have this suit of armor and how that protects us, but also how it allows us to be more aggressive in our fight. Because there is one war, and it's a holy war. It's a war on holiness, the holiness of God and the holiness of his children. But while there is one war, there are many fronts on which this war is fought. There are a few battlefields, three that we're going to talk about tonight. And those three battlefields are the home, the church, and your heart. You protect those three, you're going to do well. So we start with the home. Satan has his weapons of mass destruction pointed directly at your home. If you're not aware of that, be aware. He absolutely has targeted your home. He knows how crucial the home is. If he can destroy the family, he's got a great stronghold and an upper hand in this battle. He knows that there is power that resides in the home, and he knows that God has ordained a certain structure within the home, and therefore, if he can destroy that structure, then he can win. Now, Joshua took a stand. You remember his words? If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is the family where all of this starts. And if the family is going to withstand the wiles of the devil, then it must function the way that God intended it. And it's interesting that just before Ephesians chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talked about Christian marriage, the home, 
Even in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 6, he talked about fathers not exasperating their children, about how children are to behave. So Paul knew something that we should all know as well, and that is how to function in the home. Kids get their first impression of God from their parents. I would say children often get their first impression of God from their father. And so as fathers, we lead. You know how I, I get about Mother's Day and Father's Day. You know, I, I think all too often sermons on Father's Day are, you know, they slap the fathers around. Then on Mother's Day, all we do is praise the mothers. And as I've said before, we're all messed up. You know, fathers, I mean, can we just agree that we're all messed up? You know, that we all have some work to do. However, we have to understand the structure and understand that we cannot expect more from our children than what they see in us. So if we're not modeling it, how can we ever expect them to be victorious? We need men who lead. We need mothers who complement that leadership. Every home needs a hero. And mothers and fathers can be that hero that is so desperately needed. We need heroes of, of truth. We need heroes that are truth defenders. We need parents that are kingdom-focused, heavenly-minded, family-oriented, Bible-driven, God-seeking. This is a pursuit that should be marked by every parent choosing godliness in their home. Let's make certain that we're providing the proper illustration for our children. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, the Apostle Paul wrote, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Yes, we're all going to mess up. No parent is perfect. We make mistakes. We cannot be held to a standard of perfection. But let's be held to a standard of holiness in our home. Let our kids see that we are seeking holiness and that we're doing our dead level best to be imitators of Christ. A home without a warrior is like a bus without a driver, a, a jet without a pilot, a ship without a captain. It's going to crash. So we can't afford to let that happen. Homes need a hero because they definitely have a villain, don't they? And wherever you have a villain, you better have a hero. Unless you engage, you will lose. Unless you draw clear boundaries, your children will be led astray. Protect and nurture your marriage and your children so that you will be victorious. Unfortunately, so many times, husbands and wives are engaged in the wrong battle. They're fighting each other instead of fighting the real enemy. We've got to understand who the real enemy is. Satan revels in that, right? He revels in the fact that he can sit back and fold his arms and watch the family fall apart. Let's not allow him to invade our home. Husbands and wives, stand united. Be a holy alliance and let the love you have for God drive your marriage and permeate your home. So that's one battleground. The second battleground is the church. Do you think that Satan has his weapons aimed at us, Oldham Lane? You better believe it. And you know why? Because we're doing well. People ask me sometimes when I go speak at certain places, they say, so how's everything at Oldham Lane? I say, well, it's good. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because sometimes you're like that, right? Things can be so, going so good, you just got to wait for the other shoe to drop. You better believe when things are going well, Satan's going to target you. As a person, as the church, absolutely he has his, his eye on us. What happens all too often in the church is we battle one another, like we do in the home sometimes, and Satan gets to sit back and be a spectator instead of being a participator. 
The villain gets to stand back while he watches us destroy ourselves. My son played tennis. My son has won games in tennis without ever having to hit a ball. Because you can do that if you know anything about tennis. He stands on the other side. His opponent serves it in the net twice, moves over to the other side. His opponent serves it in the net twice, moves over to the other side. Love 30, serves in the net twice, love 40, moves over the other side, serves in the net twice, double faulted all the way through, and my son wins the game without ever doing anything. And that happens in the church. Satan doesn't have to do anything. He just sits back and watches as we destroy ourselves. Why do we want to feed the enemy? Why do we want to help him? We have got to understand what's bigger here. It's not about you. It's about something greater. The battle is not in here. This isn't days of our lives. This isn't a soap opera. This is a city of refuge, or at least it should be. It's not about bringing in the world. The church is not an extension of the world. The church is a refuge from the world. Who we are and what we are about should be at the forefront of our minds and our hearts constantly. Those two questions are are two questions we should always ask ourselves. Who are we and what are we about? What is our focus? And anytime we begin to veer off track, we should revert back to those two questions. Who are we and what are we about? We don't need more diatrophies. We don't need more Odias and Syntyches. We don't need more Alexanders and Hymenaeuses. You know who we need more of? Barnabases. We need more... Stevens. We need more Aquilas and Priscillas. We need more Pauls. We need more men and women whose number one concern is the Lord, His church, and His mission. So let's not get distracted, right? Let's not allow petty things to steal our focus because we don't have time. Jesus could come back at any point or we could leave this earth at any point. We don't have time to get caught up in the things of the world and act like human beings. We need to act like Jesus. Love must win. A love for God and a love for one another. A love for God, a love for His Word, a love for one another should mark us. They should be what identifies us. When people hear about us being Christians or about the Oldham Lane Church of Christ, what they, what they should think is, oh yeah, that's a, that's a great place. And I think they do. I wish you could go with me on speaking engagements and hear the way that people talk about Oldham Lane. The reputation that this church has. And it didn't start with me. It started with Jimmy Jividen. When I was living in Missouri, the folks up there, the, the church isn't you know, real strong. You don't have huge churches like you do here. And I told them that I was coming to, to Abilene to take a job and everybody kind of perked up. Abilene? Sure you, you know, because they have this idea that all of Abilene is just going off the rails, you know, which is not the case. But, and I said, no, I'm going to the Oldham Lane Church of Christ. They go, oh yeah, Jimmy Jividen. That's a good church. And hopefully we've kept that going. But I have preachers that when I see them at preaching things, they say, hey, if you ever leave there, let me know. This church has a great reputation. Let's keep it that way. Let's make certain that we're always fighting the right enemy and fighting for the right things. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We don't have to be united on opinion. We don't have to agree on every single minute detail. We certainly can't be united on falsehood. 
But we must be united in love and truth. We must stand firm in those two areas. We must fight for those two things. We cannot spend our time and energy devouring one another. We must fight the right enemy in the right battle and with the right weapons. And finally, we must fight for our heart. The devil wants to gain access to your heart. And he is fighting diligently to set up a stronghold. You must fortify your heart. And you must protect it at all costs. James said these words in James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And I'm sure you've heard them before and it's easy to pass over them, but listen to them. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I don't know about you, but there's a certain aspect of that statement that I find very intriguing. The fact that if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you, and the devil will do what? He will flee from you. That idea of the devil fleeing really intrigues me. Because when we, when we think about and talk about fighting the devil, we often think about being on the defensive. We think about being a sitting duck hunkering down, waiting for the devil to attack, and hoping that we have enough staying power to fight him off. But maybe it would be better if we thought about fighting the devil in a way that is more aggressive, not just defensive, but maybe offensive. When I was coaching basketball, our strategy, our system was, we're going to press you the whole game. We're going to dog you the whole game. After a missed basket, after a made basket, we're going to press the dog out of you. And I told my kids, it's not even about getting a turnover. I don't even care if you steal the ball. I just like our chances when a 16, 17-year-old kid has to make decisions under duress the whole game. I like our chances that he's going to make a few bad ones and that we've got a shot to win. What if we thought about fighting the devil that way? So the devil's uh, like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, prowl over here. Come on. See what you can do. I'm ready for you. In fact, I'll meet you halfway. I'll come and get you. How's that? Because I know who wins this thing. And you better pack a lunch because you're not going to win this one. When I was growing up, I had a bully in our neighborhood. A lot of kids in the neighborhood, and this bully was huge. He was redheaded. He was a, he was a mean kid. Freckles all over his face. And for some reason, he didn't like me. I don't know how because I'm a very endearing individual, you know. But he didn't like me. And so one day the kids told me that, you know, he's coming after you. He's got a beef with you. And I was like, okay. So I was scared. I was shaking. At that time, I weighed probably 80 pounds soaking wet. I was scared to death. And, you know, my dad always told me the bigger they are, the harder they fall. What he failed to mention is very rarely do they fall. And so he comes walking down the street after me, and I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to get pummeled anyway. I might as well try to salvage some dignity, maybe win some credibility with my friends. They're all hiding behind trees, and he's walking, the bully's walking down the street, so I just run out to meet him. I run out to meet him, I get toe-to-toe with him, I'm frothing at the mouth, and I'm screaming, and I'm yelling, and I'm throwing punches, and I'm flailing. I don't think any one of them landed, but he looked at me like I was crazy. And that was the idea, I wanted him to think I was crazy. And eventually he just left. I guess he thought I was crazy. There's no way I could have won that battle. But I thought, if I'm going to get pummeled anyway, I might as well meet him halfway. 
How about if we were more aggressive in our fight with the devil? Why can't we see and react the same way? He's prowling around like a roaring lion. Okay, so come over here. Come at me. I'm tired of the devil winning. I'm tired of him hurting me and the people that I love. And I'll tell you something, folks. He's not going to hurt this church. I'm not letting that happen. Are you with me? That is not going to happen. He is not going to infiltrate this church and hurt this congregation. Not going to happen. And I will fight to the death to make sure that he doesn't hurt the people I love. And I hope you'll fight with me. Here's the deal. He's a loser. And losers, by and large, know they're losers. Your record indicates it. And while he may win some battles here on earth, he doesn't win this one. He doesn't win the war. And he's not going to win the battle here. He can go find someone else to pick on. Because if he comes around here, he's going to walk away in defeat. God wins. And because God wins, we win. The battle belongs to the Lord, so we surrender to him. And if we do that, we're triumphant. Who are we? What are we about? Remember your identity so that when the devil attacks, we're ready. There's a story that's told about an Arab man that was camping in the desert. And it was cold at night. And his camel sticks its head in and wakes the man up and says, hey, it's cold outside. Can I put my legs in the tent? The man says, okay, that's fine. Goes back to sleep. Sometime later, the camel wakes the man up again. And it's really cold. Can I put my head in the tent? The man says, okay, I guess that's fine. This goes on all night until finally the man wakes up and the whole camel's in the tent. The man looks at the camel and says, well, this isn't really ideal. It's too crowded in here for both of us. And the camel looks at him and says, "Uh, you might want to leave. And that's what's going to happen if we're not careful. Whether it's the home, whether it's the church, whether it's our hearts. We allow the devil to stick a leg in, maybe get his foot in. We allow that to happen. We think it's not that big of a deal. We can still fight him off. He's only got his leg in. And then after a while, he's got both feet in. Then after a while, he's full-blown presence in our lives, in our hearts, in our churches, in our homes. We're going to have to do something. But it's a whole lot easier if we're proactive rather than reactive. The devil will start by trying to weasel his way in. But if we shut it off early, if we get aggressive early, he's not allowed to set up residence if we don't even crack the door, if we fortify our lives, if we'll be strong, and if we'll suit up, we're going to be okay. But we got to remember who we are and what we're about, and that this thing is bigger than us. May we all fight. Fight to the end. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we can't thank you enough for who you are, for what you're making us into. May we be completely vulnerable and susceptible to to your work in our lives. And may we remember it's not about us. May May we remember that no matter what's going on in our lives in the horizontal, that we go vertical and always look to you. May this always be a place of refuge. May our homes be fortified and may our hearts be guarded. 
so that we don't allow the devil to have a single victory. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Help us in our fight. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.